beginning with verse 27 of the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel. There are messengers running to David the king to tell him whether or not his son Absalom has won the victory and taken the kingdom from him or whether David's forces have won. And I want us to pick up the story at verse 27 of this 18th chapter. And you follow along as I read it. The watchman said, It seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you, be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Very touching moment when the heart of a father is in conflict with his role as a king. And I've read it today because I believe it very significant to the biblical principles of discipline we're looking at. David was a man after God's own heart. But like Samuel, you can be a man after God's own heart and a great servant of the Lord and a total failure as a dad and a disciplinarian. That may seem to be paradoxical, but it's true. And we're going to look at David in light of the first two points of your outline that I hope you have in your Bible if you don't. There are some copies out in the narthex. We hope that you'll pick them up and have them with you. For those parents and children living in this modern-day culture, I cannot help but feel a sense of sadness as I address you upon the subject of biblical attitudes toward discipline. Because everything is against you in this culture. 
There seem to be two extremes that are prevailing. On the one extreme, you have the sitcom television message about discipline that makes this whole subject of discipline just a great big joke. One that you laugh at. One that you get around and do what you want to do. And you watch all of the sitcoms and they come out that way. Discipline, biblical discipline, is almost missing completely. Then in our culture on the other extreme, at the other end of this spectrum of extremes, is that the secular world is making biblical discipline suspect, even to the point of the threat of being accused of child abuse and perhaps even being reported to the authorities. Now that's not to say that child abuse is not a very frightening problem in our culture. It is. But I submit to you that one of the reasons it's such a frightening problem is that we've had such a total neglect in our culture of biblical discipline, both in the understanding of how to administer it and in the understanding of how to receive it. And it's in the spirit and desire to help parents that we are looking at this outline that Bill Gothard shared, most of it at least is his, at the pastor's conferences that are still being held across the nation and our own Jim Logan has been participating in them. Now, we've only looked at the first two points of our outline thus far, and we're not going any farther than that today because we're preparing our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And I just want to remind you again that a role model must be present of what you intend to teach if discipline is going to be effective. It just has to be. And all of us who are concerned about having families that, that function according to biblical pattern and God's uh, sovereign will and plan must be serious about being Christians in whom the gospel of the Lord Jesus is working out. Your salvation is working out. And you're very serious about letting Jesus Christ live his life within you in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit to control your life, separated unto God, so that your life is a role model for your children to see and, and others to see. And then we mentioned that love and encouragement must precede correction. We've cautioned, do not combine praise and blame. Praise is to be daily. Blame is to be seldom. And uh, it's very important that you not combine the two. We told the little story about the man who said he used the sandwich approach to discipline. 
He'd give a little layer of praise and then a little layer of blame. And Bill Gothard responded to him that it was a baloney sandwich. And that's a good way to remember that you don't do that. The two, it ought to be separate. And if you've been taking care of the proper application of encouragement and praise to your children, you won't have to consider whether or not you've been doing that when it comes times to discipline. Discipline can flow very quickly when it's needed because you've been careful to give praise. And let me once again affirm that if you have been failing to encourage and to commend, you need to begin to practice that diligently or your reproof will fail. It's just one of the principles of the Word over and over again. And those who haven't learned it fail as fathers. I love the article that was in the paper to this week about Josh McDowell. And I just want to read a few of the things that are quoted in the paper that he said. Parental love is at the heart of children's self-esteem. And the lack of that love can lead to pre, uh, premarital sex, drug, and alcohol use. Intentionally known Christian speaker Josh McDowell asserted Sunday night. The number one reason for many of our drug and alcohol problems is that our children are searching for their father's, we might add their mother's, love. McDowell told a standing room only crowd at Sioux City Convention Center. He stressed the importance of the role fathers play in their children's development, calling it the dad difference. For parents, McDowell urged them to do four things in raising their children. Give them unconditional love, not based on their achievements or not based uh, or their, on their actions. Give them praise for doing the right thing daily instead of criticizing them for doing something wrong. Give them affection, both verbal and physical. Give them time so they will realize they are important. We need kids to give kids the rules, but if you don't have a relationship, suspend the rules and work on the relationship. And that's really what I'm saying that if you have neglected developing the relationship, your discipline won't work. All you'll do is create resentment. It's absolutely essential. Now that's tremendously illustrated in the life of David. And I wish that I had time to really spend a lot of time looking at this, but we don't this morning, but I want to take a few moments just to remind you of why he came to this moment where he sobbed out his broken-hearted expression of father love. Now, it's not that he didn't love his son. I think David loved his family as dearly as any man ever loved his family. 
But he lost his family. Even Solomon, who probably got the best parental oversight of any of his children, even Solomon morally became a man who was just possessed with sexual desire and who ultimately, even though he was one of the wisest men who ever lived, messed up his life. And much of it is traceable back to his dad. Now look at me. Look at with me at several things that illustrate why David failed so tragically as a father, even though he was a man after God's own heart. First of all, he failed to role model what he intended to teach. He failed to role model what he intended to teach. And of course, you pick that up in chapter 11. And that whole scenario about David and Bathsheba, uh, where he lusted and, and uh, took what he wanted, uh, clearly against God's word, he knew that. And then he went even further than that. He uh, murdered Uriah when Bathsheba became pregnant with his child. He literally murdered Uriah. And then you remember that uh, in the closing verse says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord and God is a better disciplinarian than David. And you see God's discipline step in. And God doesn't fool around with discipline. His love is greater than that. God makes it sure. And you know the story, how Nathan the prophet rebuked him with that little story about the sheep. And then finally Nathan told him that he was the man and then verse 11 tells us the result that's going to come. Now please keep in mind, I think what God is saying here is that this is the natural result that's going to come to his family of one who did not provide the role model, of one who didn't practice discipline and didn't learn how to use discipline wisely. What's going to happen? Look at verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. Verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because of doing this, you have made enemies of the Lord. Show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. God knows how to discipline. And he did it quickly, sharply, with definition. And his little son conceived immorally, is taken from him. But the second thing I want to say is that when he failed to role model, 
what he intended to teach. He also opened the door for disaster to come to his family. And you don't have to wait long until you see it. Notice in chapter 13, you have Amnon lusting after his half-sister, very beautiful, lovely, precious virgin girl, morally clean, wanted to remain that way. But Amnon became so filled with lust toward her that he, uh, he got onto a scheme of how that he was going to follow Jonadab's advice. And he got her into his room and he raped her. A terrible, wicked thing happened in that family. And Amnon's sin made David angry. But he failed to properly attend to discipline when it was desperately needed. He got angry. Verse 21 of that 13th chapter says, when King David heard all this, he was furious. But you never get very far disciplining when you're fiercely angry. It's interesting, Dr. Dobson in his little pamphlet, what is the most common error made by parents in disciplining their children? And his answer, it is the inappropriate use of anger in attempting to control boys and girls. There's no more ineffective method of influencing people than showing irritation and anger. Nevertheless, most adults rely primarily on emotional assault to secure the cooperation of their children. And that's apparently what David did. He went into a rage over this awful thing that had happened, but he didn't do anything. He didn't follow the example that God had just given him about discipline coming quickly and appropriately. He just got mad. Never did anything. Now, not only did he do a great disservice to his son Amnon, but he also contributed to the bitterness of his son Absalom. And Absalom said, I'm going to get even. My half-brother violated my sister, and he's going to pay. Dad didn't do anything about it, but I'll do something about it. And he carried it, carried it far beyond what he should have done. He killed his brother murdered him. And when his son Absalom had done this, David exiled him. Notice in verse uh, 38, after Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. Three long years of exile. As far as we know, David never did a thing. He was just mad. And he was silent. He shut his son away from him. He didn't administer proper discipline. And there was no praise. And you can imagine what thoughts went through Absalom's mind. 
during those three years of exile. Why doesn't my father deal with me? He must have cared more for Amnon, for Amnon than he cares for me. I'm so despised by my father, he won't even see my face. And you'll notice that after the three years, the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom. But he didn't. He just shut him away. And finally, Joab hatches upon a scheme to somehow get Absalom back. And he did come back. But for the first two years, he was back. David refused to even let him see his face. And finally, Absalom has to initiate the action to get back into fellowship with his dad. Now, that's an awful way to discipline. And disaster came. And I just have to share this with you in closing. You see, failing to get praise from David, being shut away from his father for those five years, he was going to get his praise someplace. And he did. He got his praise by uh, his handsome appearance and what he said to the people. And pretty soon, a plan began to hatch in his heart where bitterness was growing against his dad. He could take the kingdom. The people were loving him. They were praising him. And you all know that's what happened. Absalom turned on his father. Absalom was the one that violated his father's household. And it's a fascinating study in the disaster of bad discipline. And I think there's a message in this for you and me. And that is that if you don't give your children the praise, the encouragement, the self-esteem that needs to flow from mom and dad to that child, they'll get it someplace. And if there's anything that tells the story of why our young people are going into drugs and sexual permissiveness and running with their crowd, it's because that's where they get their praise and their sense of self-acceptance. So dear parents, that's where discipline begins. A proper role model. And then a life that supports your children and loved ones with encouragement and praise. We come to the communion table now. And I hope that you understand that the communion table is a constant reminder to you and me of just what we've been looking at. What do these elements say to you? They say to you that in spite of the fact that you are a failing 
sinful human being that God loves you and that he was willing to die in your place. He was willing to bear in his own body your sins and mine upon the cross. Mothers know all too well that they have many, many callings. Important callings. Everything from A to Z, as the cliche goes. She's the chief cook and bottle washer, as another one goes. She does so much. Just with the business of a home and a family, and all that goes on in living. She does the laundry, scrubs the floors, dusts the furniture, washes the windows, buys the groceries, and most often carries them in and puts them away. She cooks the meals, cleans the house, puts out the garbage, chauffeurs the children here and there, teaches in Sunday school, sews on buttons, weeds the garden, and uh, makes the beds and changes the diapers and kisses away the hurts. And I haven't even begun to touch on what you mothers do or have done. No wonder we have a Mother's Day to honor you. But what is the highest calling of all of those things that mothers are responsible to do. In light of our series of biblical principles of discipline, I would like to suggest that the highest calling of any mother is the next point in that outline that you were given a number of weeks ago. Train your child to seek your approval, and to delight in gaining wisdom. Did you hear that? What is the highest calling of a mother? Train your child to seek your approval and to delight in gaining wisdom. Now, because we've had such a full service, I'll only be able to touch on that first point today. This is the advantage of having a, a continuing series like this. So that I won't have to just not tell you what's upon my heart. I can bring it to you next week. But let's look at that first point. Train your children to seek your approval. That's one of the highest callings of any parent. The word says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Train your child to seek your approval. Now, there are two key words in that strong statement. One has to do with relationship and the other has to do with authority. Train your child to seek your approval. 
First of all, by establishing relationship. There's no greater responsibility that a parent has than to do that. Well, how do you do it? How do you go about, as a loving mother, to to build relationship with your children? We mentioned last year, or last week, David as an example of a loving dad, a godly dad. A man after God's own heart, God himself called him. But he was a terrible failure as a parent. Now, why was he a failure? Was it because he didn't love his children? No, I think the word of God establishes that probably of all the parents of Scripture, nobody loved his children any more than David did. Remember that occasion? When his son Absalom, who had tried to wrest the kingdom from his father, and it ended up dying, how that David cried out and wept until he could scarcely be comforted. Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would God I had died for you. Oh, my son Absalom. He loved his children. But with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom and even Solomon, he never had a relationship with them. What are children seeking more than anything else? Intimacy. Closeness. And where they're seeking it the most is from parents. But if they don't find it there, they will find it. In the drug culture, in the sexual looseness of the day, establish relationships. How do you do that? Well, the first thing you do, you do it in prayer. You see, intimacy and closeness between a parent and his child doesn't just happen. In fact, the thing that just happens is just the opposite. Because, you see, we're part of a spiritual struggle. And the last thing the enemy of our souls wants to happen is intimate closeness between a parent and his child. And the enemy of our souls will do everything he can to build walls, barriers, between loving parents and their children. What can you do about that? Well, as a believer, you have tremendous authority in the spiritual realm to demolish those walls and those barriers just in your prayer life. If you begin to sense that there's something between you and your child, you can't quite define it, but you know that you're not coming through. Where do you begin? Well, you begin in prayer on a daily basis. 
pulling down all of the barriers that the enemy of your soul wants to build between you and your children or one of your children. And you just pull it down. We're mighty through God, the Scripture says, to the pulling down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Are you doing that? So important. Build relationships by demolishing barriers in your prayer life. Another way you build relationships is through praise and encouragement and commendation. We talked about that last week. Every child needs that. He's so conscious of his limitations, his weakness. And unless you encourage and commend and build up, no child should go a day without his parent somehow communicating. You're worth something. I value you. And especially commending in character traits and never condemning in character traits. That communicates. That builds relationships. And if it's not there, it destroys them. No matter how much you love your child. And as we saw last week, that's the great area in which David failed his children. He didn't know how to commend them. How to build relationships. The third thing about building a relationship is to communicate unconditional love. How does a parent do that? Well, the most important way is just to touch them. Touch them. Put your hands upon them in gentle commendation with honor and respect and dignity. There's no love quite communicated to a young child like touch. And the second thing, with your words. I'm amazed at how many times in my counseling ministry I've heard to, had to have someone say to me, I never remember my dad and even my mother ever saying to me, I love you. They ought to hear it every day. You want to build relationships? Use words. Good words. Loving words. Eye contact. Teach your children to look in your eyes. So important. Much is communicated through your eyes. Take enough time to do it. Consistent discipline. There's no way that you can communicate love if you do not discipline. Forgiveness. 
How important for a child to be assured that you forgive them. Unconditional love builds wonderful relationships. Also, designate some time and availability. Oh, it's so important to have time with your children. Where you gather them on your lap when they're little. Did you ever know how much you communicate relationship and intimacy when you hold that precious child on your lap and read to him? That builds intimacy. It's absolutely essential. If you are going to establish relationships and train your child to seek your approval, to pray, to praise and encourage, to communicate unconditional love, then spend some time when you're available with them. Now what about the other side? Not only train your child to seek your approval through relationship, also through establishing authority. You see, there isn't anything more important to your child than to respect authority. It has everything to do with his future. And one of the reasons that we're in such national disaster is that multitudes of children never learned to honor authority in the home. Now, how do you do that? First of all, establish the meaning of no. I think one of the tragedies of most of us as parents when that first child comes along is that we tend to forget that they have a very sinful nature. Our oldest, our youngest daughter, Judy, um, has a little Christiane. Uh, she and Rick, that's less than a year old. And uh, Judy's a natural mother. She's been that since she was a little girl. But she just loves that little girl as much as any mother's ever loved a little girl. And we just got a call this morning, her mother did on Mother's Day from Brazil, saying that she's going to be home on May 31st. And we're so anxious to see that child that both Rick and Judy have assured us is just the greatest child ever lived. But you know what Judy said to me one of the last times that she called she said, Dad, she's got an old nature. And that's an admission from this mother, I assure you. But she's a strong-willed child who wants her own way. Now, where do you begin to establish that there's authority that that child must respect when they have that by nature? And it's not part of the good nature, I assure you. It's coming from the old nature. And there has to be the recognition by every child that the parent is a person of authority 
who says no. And dear, dear parents, I wish I didn't have to say this, but I have seen it so many times and I have never seen it, but what I've gone away with almost a broken heart. When in my presence some parent corrects his child and says no, and that child deliberately defies the parent. He does what he wanted to do. And the parent looks the other way. What a tragedy. What disaster for authority. If you don't say no. And mean it. And establish it. The second thing about establishing authority, communicate clear, understandable instructions. I want to say more about this later, but let me just say it at this point. Do not expect your child to always understand what you mean. And before you correct, be sure the child understood what you said. And that's not always easy because their little minds don't register sometimes when you tell them. And leading on to the final one, administer appropriate discipline promptly. And the two words there are appropriate and promptly. Do it so that the offense, the transgression, is close enough related to the discipline the child understands. And if it can't be that close, then it's probably better to wait until a future moment. And the discipline needs to be appropriate. Be careful about that. We saw last week how that David in response to Amnon's terrible sin, was furious. Appropriate discipline is not getting furious. Not losing your temper. I don't want to say that sometimes it's not okay. When emotionally you get so involved in the situation that you might lose your temper. But always it probably should be followed up with even an apology to your child. Appropriate discipline. What should it be? I think you have to look carefully at your child. You have to know what he responds to. There's no hard and fast rule on that. But it is important. We were privileged to have in our home a number of years ago a 23-year-old girl who really had lost about five years of her life because of drugs and living on the street and so many terrible things. But we took her into our home and we just loved her. And one of the things, of course, 
we have about our home is we control what goes on in our home. We don't allow, for example, rock music with all of its questionable lyrics to be played in our home. Well, Kathy had lived on this for years. And uh, she put us to the test a number of times. Every time she did, and I was present, I'd just walk over and say, Kathy, we don't have that kind of music in our home. And turn it off. Now, I'll never forget the day Kathy came to me. And she said to me, I love it when you say no to me. You know why she said that? Because she grew up in a home where they indulged her every whim, a wealthy home. She always got what she wanted. But she never found what she really wanted. Somebody who could say no with authority and dignity so that in the limits of that authority she could find security. That's what is desperately needed in your home. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how important it is to train our children to seek our approval through relationships and through authority. And I just pray that somehow these quiet words of instruction shall encourage mothers and dads here today in the awesome role of being a parent. Encourage them in Jesus' name.